Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can. But it's just as important to take time for yourself. AARP can help. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm your host, Mark Stenson. In addition to these podcast interviews, I facilitate patient-doctor listening research known as Innovate Groups. These panels have four patients and four doctors and provide an opportunity to observe and improve the interactions that lie at the heart of effective health care. I've created an ebook on this Innovate Group method, and I'd like to offer you a download. It includes real-life case studies to underscore the power of better patient-doctor listening. So visit biosciencebridge.com to download your ebook, Innovate Group Revolutions. Now, before I welcome today's guest, here's a familiar voice on an important health topic. Welcome to The Patient Speak, Healthcare Innovations Accelerating the Patient Journey. Featuring interviews with healthcare leaders and patient advocates. Here's your host, best-selling author, Mark Stinson. So glad to have as my guest today, author, thinker, philosopher, Ken Dykewald. Great to be with you, Mark. Ken has really made a vocation out of thinking ahead about how we're going to age and how that aging process will look. His latest book, Radical Curiosity, also looks inside his own search for a purposeful life. And I can't wait to cover all that with you, Ken. I can't help but start with the title of the book, Ken, Radical curiosity. Not just, I wonder what if, but thinking about that in a radical way. What did that title mean to you? What I noticed, I've been going at the writing and speaking and consulting thing now for 50 years. And I noticed that there's a lot of attention focused on success, seven habits of highly successful people, on abundance, on fortitude. And I I thought, I think they're missing the point a lot. I, I think that a lot of what drives innovation is curiosity. And a lot of people, if you bring up curiosity to them, they're thinking it means what's playing on TV tonight, or I can look something up on YouTube that I'm not so sure about. And what I was trying to suggest in the book that there is a deeper dive to be taken, like what happens after we die kind of curiosity. How do we reinvent the world kind of curiosity? Who can we be when we're 70 curiosity? And I know that a lot of people are pretty jacked up about artificial intelligence, as am I. But I become really captivated by what I call I, imagination intelligence. And I don't think it's taught in the schools. I don't think we necessarily encourage it. And unfortunately, I think being able to Google everything has made us a little bit lazy. We don't necessarily know how to seek out creative thinkers. We don't really know how to bang around inside our minds. What's a new idea? What's a better way to say something? What hasn't been thought about before? I tried to imply with the title that curiosity, first of all, matters, and it ought to be up there 
in our schools, in our companies, in our families is something we emphasize is important. And I've read some other reviews that have said, and I observed this too, that this wasn't just an autobiography, the relations of your life, but also it doesn't come across as that how to think, as you said, experts on creativity have written a lot of these six point, the seven ways and all these kinds of books. But there's a lot of how to in your stories threaded through your memoir reflections is uh, how you thought about things then and maybe how you reflect on them now. Thanks for asking. First of all, I'm a fan of books that like here's the five, the 10 commandments or the five (laughs) habits of, or the six things that successful people do. I read those books, but what I try to dig around in is, okay, I've been alive since 1950. I've managed to work with some of the most extraordinary leaders, presidents, creators, been an advisor to half the Fortune 500. So what have I learned? And and there's a couple of three things, Mark, if I might, that I can share with your viewers and listeners. First of all, don't accept the status quo. I'll give you an example. Years ago, I was having dinner with the woman who is the head of the Great Panthers. She was called America's Wrinkled Radical, Maggie Kuhn. And at dinner, she said to me, we don't have a good word to, to characterize caring for older people. Right now, the only two ways we talk about it is either long-term care or geriatric medicine. So she said to me, make up a new word. I said, what what do you mean make up a new word or word? She says, no, make up a new word. And I says, okay, how much time you give me to do that? Took tomorrow morning at breakfast. So I was up all night and I came back. I said, elder care. And she said, I love it. And I gave a speech about elder care. And next thing I knew, I wrote two books about it. And it's now a word people use all the time. Right. I made up the phrase holistic health, which people think was somehow chiseled by our ancestors on a rock somewhere, <laughs> calling something an age wave. I made up the phrase healthy aging, that somehow when you can come up with a new way of stating something, and it works its way into the master narrative, you can reshape things that people think. For example, my very first book, I named Body Mind. And the publisher said, those are two words, so it should be body and mind. I said, no, I want the title to be body mind, which makes a point that they're connected. And they really battled me on that. Their compliance department, legal department, you can't make up words. And I said, who said you can't make up words? (laughs) So let me use that as a simple example. Don't accept the status quo. You may have a thought or an idea. I was having dinner with Tim Berners-Lee in Davos, Switzerland, the night before the World Wide Web was revealed to the crowd there. The internet was something nobody had really, the public, we hadn't really imagined that. We didn't wake up each day and wish that there was something like that. But that came out of DARPA and Tim dreamed it up with a group of other people. And it's, by the way, I've watched him over the decades and I was with him that night at dinner. And did he think it was gonna become the number one porn site or travel bureau or a way to give misinformation never crossed his mind. Tim was a very uh, honest, altruistic, high-minded fellow. And so sometimes when you unleash something into the world, someone's gonna populate it with ideas or practices that are not what you thought of. Let me give you one other, one last example on this. And then I wanna make one other point, but when I was a kid, when I was like 30, I was speaking at a conference in Chicago and one of the other speakers was this luminary Buckminster Fuller. 
And I went to the dining room you know, of the hotel at dinner and by myself, and I saw a few tables away. There he was eating dinner by himself. And I thought, hey, how often am I going to get a chance to maybe say hi to Bucky Fuller? That's so right. I went over to his table. I said, Mr. Fuller, would you mind? You're the creator of geodesic domes and a whole way of thinking about the earth. And could I join you? And he wanted, he said, you can join me only if you tell me your favorite science fiction story. I thought, wow, what an interesting guy right there. How many people ask that as a requirement to be a dinner companion? Yes. I told him about the Sound of Distant Thunder, the Asimov story about the butterfly effect, which he was aware of, but he wanted to hear my take on it. But then I said to him, so what's your deal? What do you see yourself doing in this life? And he didn't even hesitate. He said to me, I'm a trim tab. I'm a human trim tab. I said, I have no idea what that is. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, do you fly or sail? I said, no. He says, a trim tab is a rudder on a plane or a boat that steers in turbulence. I'm a human trim tab. I steer societies in times of turbulence. I said, wow, how cool to even think like that. And, but then he said to me, Mark, he said, all right, Ken, what are you? I said, I don't know. He said, you got to tell me something. And I said, all right, I work in this aging field. I'm young at it, but I'm a trim t I'm this, I'm the, I'm the guy at the railroad tracks that pulls the switch. I'm a switchman because the train, if it's heading in the wrong direction, you got to pull that switch in order to get the train going in the right direction. And you know what? That has not left my mind for one minute in all these decades. So I guess part of the point to that story is you got to know a little bit about what you're trying to make happen in the world. What is your role? What is it that you as a creator or as an innovator or a solver are trying to get to happen? And then double and triple down on it. And I, I do want to say that one thing that I've been lucky with, that I picked a subject that was very unpopulated by talent. If I were to say to you, I want to be creating computer games for 14 year old teenage boys, I'd be up against thousands of yeah, others. There's, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of talent <laughs> over there. So I decided I was going to be the guy that helped dream up what are the products and services and ideas that would be needed in a world where there'd be increasing longevity and more and more older people. And they would be different kind of older people than our grandparents. And I looked around and there was almost nobody else doing that. And I thought, not a bad place to play because I can really maybe stand out. And that's something that I don't ever talk about, but it did cross my mind that I, there is value in not picking a territory that's massively occupied by mm -hmm. lots of other talent, picking an area that you can really make an impact and stand apart. Yes. Well, and certainly these themes and topics have evolved over the years. And we were, we were stating that uh, I first became aware of your work in the mid-90s. And I know I had a bigger, longer, browner set of hair. I can't uh, speak for you 40 years ago, but <laughs> I do recall that now we are in the demographic that we were projecting what would be this healthy aging process. As you look back on that, and I guess even where we stand now, what are some of your thoughts? how it came about for me. I initially went to school to be a physicist 
And then it was the late 1960s and I wandered into a course. It was called The Psychology of Human Potential. And it seemed at first odd to me. The very first textbook in the course was The Varieties of the Psychedelic Experience. And I thought, I know that's all popular now with microdosing and such, but this was 1969 and I was was clueless. Mm -hmm. But as the course unfolded, the idea of the course blew me away. The idea that humans had extraordinary potentials, whether it be to be artists, to be sexually gifted, to be brilliant, to be creative, to be imaginative, to be kind, to be loving. We had all these potentials and by and large, we're only scratching the surface using about 5% of our potentials. And I thought, man, that's the most interesting thing I ever heard. So long and short, and to make my parents very nervous, I quit college and moved to Big Sur, California, where the Esalen Institute was, because that's where the action was. That's where the philosophers and the psychologists, like earlier on, the left bank of Paris was a breeding ground for great writers. Big Sur and Esalen was the breeding ground for pioneering and innovative thinkers, whether it was Tim Leary or Ram Dass or Alan Watts or Michael Murphy or Fritz Perls, all these kind of characters. They were all gathering to try to rub up against each other and learn new things. And I, um, I've spent my life, although working in the field of aging, it's always been with a part of me believing what could we become. Many people looked at aging from the, oh, what a terrible thing, bunch of geezers coming down the highway. And I more saw what an interesting thing that's happening. Throughout 99% of human history, the average life expectancy at birth was under 18. Mm -hmm. So there have always been some old people, but not many. And so old was rare, and most people died young. And I, as I looked at the demography and I looked at the medical breakthroughs coming and I looked at the baby boomer generation and its path, it struck me that in the 21st century, where we are now, we would begin to shift for being a youth dominated culture to a middle aged and then elder culture. And that had never happened before on planet earth. And so I thought that's going to need some maps. We're going to need to think about that. We're going to need to probe it, to envision it, to imagine it. And I've had, I've been a very lucky guy. I've been a, I've been on that beat now for a long time, but I do want to say for your audience that, you know, I've written 19 books and people think, oh, you write a book, you must know something. The most interesting thing about publishing a book is all the people after the book (laughs) that tell you what you didn't know. And you can either get defensive and say, how dare you? Or I would always say, all right, fill me in. For example, my last book was, one of my last books was What Retirees Want. And uh, it was meant to be the number one book in the world on what it is in terms of housing and healthcare and media and, and travel that the, old, the new older adult population was craving. And a woman called me up. She says, I'm an expert on solo agers. And you didn't really cover solo aging very well. And I think you don't, she said to me, I don't think you don't, you understand us. I said, can you teach me? And she did. And that happens like hundreds of times when you put something out, people are going to want it either because they're obnoxious or they're wise or both. They want to tell you what you don't know. Mm -hmm. But then if they teach you, 
then you know it. So that curiosity that we've been yeah, talking you can about. Continue right? learning from putting out your ideas, but then being willing to shake the tree and get some more insights along the way. Yeah. And that's at all levels of your clients and those that you've associated with. Right on the cover of the book, a quote from one of my favorite people in the world, President Jimmy Carter. He said, here's Ken Dykewald, a thinker and an original innovator in this important subject of aging. He, he was writing his own book, The Virtues of Aging. I, and, I'll give you the backgrounder on that. Yes. So I was in, it was a terribly obnoxious thing that I did. I was asked to speak at a mental health conference that Rosalind Carter was putting on decades ago, and they had no fee. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll come to Georgia and do this talk if I can have dinner with Mrs. and President Carter. And at first they were like shocked that somebody yeah, would ask an audacious yeah. <laughs> question. And then they got back to me and said they'd love to. So long and short of it was, I developed a connection with the Carters. And President Carter said to me that he wanted to write a book about his own philosophy of aging. Would I be his mentor? Now, I was like 40 something and he was a wise elder. And I said, what can I teach you? He says, I don't know, but can you come to Georgia every few weeks and we'll sit and talk? And no kidding, Mark, he had read all of my books. You know, I take meetings with people who may want to work for me or, and they don't do any homework. They just think they're sure. too cool. And here was President Carter had read my books and he had a notepad the first meeting and he says, I'm here to learn from you. And I'm like, I cannot believe it. Because first of all, he's extremely smart. And second of all, he's extremely inquisitive. And I've met other presidents that are not inquisitive. They think they know everything. And over the course of that year, what emerged for him was this book, Virtues of Aging. And I, what an honor for me, he mentions me in his acknowledgments as being his sort of guide, but to be in the presence of truly inquisitive and creative minds who are continually trying to learn is valuable because we live in a society today where you turn on the news, whatever persuasion you have, you get the feeling that everybody talking thinks they already know everything about everything. They're not inquisitive. They're just trying to catch you. They're just trying to make their point. To be around inquisitive, curious people who want to learn, who want to grow, is inspiring. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about another aspect of the book, and that is there's a thread of a personal and family uh, story throughout. And the, the development of the relationships with your sons, how was how this part of your radical curiosity and, and the search, as you say, for purpose. First of all, I've never been asked these particular questions before. So it, this is a fun little Zen exercise for me. So when I was maybe, I don't know, 40, I landed on the cover of Inc. magazine. So this would be like 1980. And it was before the internet. So it wasn't a matter of emailing people. But I started getting letters from other Inc. cover guys and gals. It was like a club. And we started conferring with each other and sharing ideas. And one of the things I noticed is that a lot of these great, successful people had really sad personal lives. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your wife. I've been married six times. Tell me about your kids. My son is an alcoholic. Tell me about, and I thought, oh, I felt so bad. And I thought, wow, in America, we make heroic business success, even if your life is not so great. And I decided early on that I didn't want to be that. 
So I have placed a lot of emphasis in my life on my relationship with my wife, whom I remarry every year. We've been married 39 times in 39 different locations with 39 religions. And with each of my kids who are colorful, adventurous souls. But even when they were teenagers, I would do one-on-one trips with each of them each year, someplace they wanted to go, whether it was rafting the Grand Canyon or seeing shows in Paris or just camping. And so I have attempted to invest in processes and dynamics whereby my relationship within my family were nourishing and I was present where I know that my dad was just busy working all the time and he wasn't very active a dad. And and I know that a lot of other people who were seeking, making a lot of money or being successful, they pushed to the side of their family. And I'd like to say, and what I tried to say in that book, Radical Curiosity, was that it's balancing it, you know? It's a balancing act. And it's not a bad idea to have role models. And I don't have very many. Mm-hmm. We... What do we know about, name anybody. And, and do we want to be like them because what, they made a billion dollars or do we want to be like them because what, they're happy mm-hmm. and, or because people love them. And I'll give you one anecdote. One of my mentors, and there's a chapter about him in the book, was a gentleman named Houston Smith. Houston was considered the world's leading religious scholar. He was a practicing Christian, Buddhist, and Hindu. He was head of the religious studies department at MIT. When I got to know him, he was in his 90s, and I was asked to do his final interview before he passed. And I asked him, I said, Houston, there is no one who has studied religion more deeply on earth than you have. By the way, he was the advisor to the Dalai Lama and the Pope. And I said to him, is there any lesson you've learned by living these 90 plus years about how to live a more fulfilled life? And I thought some theory was going to come out about meditation or about spiritual practice or about going to get your graduate degrees. And he said, Ken, for all of us, be a little kinder. And I thought, we don't see that on the cover of the magazines when the executives are being hailed for their success. Not not that much. Be a little kinder is what matters to them. And so... What I tried to share in Radical Curiosity is having the benefit of knowing Tim Leary or knowing Jimmy Carter or knowing Bill Clinton or knowing what lessons that I learned, both good and bad, about how to live a life that's not only filled with curiosity and innovation and maybe some success, but also with nourishment from people who you love and who love you back. Mm -hmm. Ken, the 19 books we've talked about all the work on age wave over the years. Look now over the horizon. Are there still burning topics or burning subjects that you still want to research? And maybe there's the 20th and 21st book already brewing. But what do you see as far as your next curious topic? I'm going to answer this by hitting it two shots on the goal. One of them is that I, as an innovator wannabe in the aging gerontology longevity medicine fields, you think the people I would study with are people in those fields. But I used to go to Prince concerts because I want to see the way he worked the audience. I go to Stones concerts because I want to see how much of Jagger's mix is new stuff and old stuff. 
I've been to the Sistine Chapel more times than I can count because it's the most extraordinary creation, I think, by a human being on earth, but he hated working on it. Mm-hmm. He hated every minute of it, and he hated the way it came out. So I try to find people who are creative and innovative and examine them and watch them and learn from them. In terms of me, I, I uh, early, when I, I wrote about aging and such when I was in my 20s and 30s, and here I am now in my early 70s, and I thought I'd be ready to wind things down. The opposite is what's going on. I'd love to do a Broadway show. I'd love to write a science fiction book, and I've been cooking up an idea for that. Uh, I recently did a series of 12 what were called legacy interviews that are now airing as Sages of Aging on PBS channels all over the country. And I thought, wow, maybe I can do legacy interviews with the Dalai Lama and with Jagger and like with extraordinary people from our era to see what they believe and think and feel about things. And maybe I'll be an interviewer. And I don't know. I've started working out harder. I'm thinking maybe I could be more fit. So I don't feel done. And also in my own field uh, of gerontology and longevity studies, what's now being called geroscience, there's going to be some breakthroughs in the next few years that are going to allow people to live decades longer than humans have ever lived. And right now, the way it's falling into place is that it's the billionaires that are going after them. And you don't hear about this publicly, but I know these people and I know what they're injecting and I know what processes they're going to Bahamas for. And it's, I don't, I feel like I'm a believer in this equity issue. I think we need healthy longevity for everyone, not just the billionaires. So I feel like I got social causes to fight for. So I, I look at the years to come and I almost am chagrined that I may only have X years in front of me because I feel like I'm just getting my game going. Mm-hmm. There's a lot on the horizon for you. My guest has been Ken Dykewald. He's the founder and CEO of AgeWave, author of lots of books we've been talking about. And Ken, I love to wrap up a lot of what you've been saying, this call to action that a lot of people read in this book, to do more, to be more curious, more independence and discovery. And it sounds like you're on that path still too. No no slowing you down. Yeah, I want to make a crack about that though, because unfortunately among our elders in this society, And over the last decade, including COVID, but even before, the average retiree watched 47 hours of television a week (laughs) and and did almost nothing with their lives. And I'm not saying that flamboyantly. I'm saying that because I've studied this stage of life. I think that one of the greatest areas of growth for all of us is not who we can be only when we're 30 or 40 or 50, but how might we reinvent ourselves and recharge our batteries when we're 60 and 70 and 80 and 90. And I'd like to be a kind of a provocateur in that zone. Uh, we'd like to join you in that. Listeners, my guest has been Ken Dykewal. He's the author of a great book, Radical Curiosity. And the subtitle is as powerful as the title, One Man's Search for Cosmic Magic and a Purposeful Life. Ken, can't thank you enough for being on the show. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Patient Speak. Healthcare Innovations Accelerating the Patient Journey with best-selling author Mark Stinson. Our podcast is hosted on Captivate.fm so you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode of The Patients Speak. This podcast is produced by BSB Media. 
We also host another show you might enjoy, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. It's a top-rated podcast featuring interviews with creators around the world. We help you gain the confidence and connections to launch your creative work out into the world. Look for Unlocking Your World of Creativity on your favorite podcast app.